Yeah, and I think the big aha for me was, and the big takeaway from this paper is, we simulationists are change agents. If we don't take seriously what other people care about, what are their most significant pain points or precious goals, our programs are going to be dead in the water. Welcome everyone to the Center for Medical Simulations Grand Rounds. Uh, today we're going to be talking with a really great team about the recent article, Leading Change in Practice, How Longitudinal Pre-Briefing Nurtures and Sustains In-Situ Simulation Programs. And I'm here today with Susan Eller, Komal Bajaj, and Jenny Rudolph. Hey, James. So Glad to be here. What a delight. So I'm going to throw it to you guys, and I wonder if you guys can maybe introduce yourselves in a little more detail. I'm just going around on my screen, starting with Susan. Well, thank you for having us here to have this conversation, James. As uh, you said, my name is Susan Eller. I'm the Associate Dean uh, for Immersive Learning and Learning Spaces at Stanford University School of Medicine. Um, I recently minted my PhD as of tomorrow, and so I'm just thrilled to be here discussing this work with my cherished colleagues, uh, Dr. Jenny Rudolph and Dr. Komal Bajaj. You know, I, I feel like, I, you know, I'm, I'm here with like a nice little, you know, cup of coffee or a drink. Uh, it's just really lovely to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Komal Bajaj. I'm an OBGYN simulationist and uh, also serve as chief quality officer for a couple of hospitals in New York City. Um, and I think, you know, um, unpacking some of the concepts that we're going to uh, unpack today is, is, is just so important to me um, because it's really things that I use or have learned to use uh, every day in my role as chief quality officer. And our globetrotting Jenny Rudolph. Hi, everybody. Jenny Rudolph. I'm the other OB. I'm an organizational behavior scholar by training, and I'm the director of innovation here at the Center for Medical Simulation, talking with you all this morning from the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia, <clears throat> and very excited to see that actual organizational behavior theory makes a difference in how we do simulation, which is, I think, what we'll be talking about today. And I will be moderating uh, our little talk today. My name is James Lipshaw. I am the Assistant Director of Instructional Design and Media at the Center for Medical Simulation. Uh, so let's, to get started, um, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the impetus for the paper, uh, what was the problem we were approaching. Um, and so I feel like, Kamal, you had sort of the, the thing that got the band together. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, like most great in things in my life, it sort of happened serendipitously. Um, I was actually in the Gold Coast, where Jenny is right now, um, as a speaker for the Australasian Sim Congress, and was listening to other folks talk about their journey implementing uh, Insight2 simulation, and I was like, huh, that sounds very familiar to my journey. Uh, you know, here we are on two opposite sides of the world, kind of going through some of the same steps. And then, you know, it, it just so happened that a few months later, uh, Simulcast had a journal club featuring an article around psychological safety and pre-briefing. Uh, and Susan 
posted so elegantly as she usually does on simulcast. Um, some thoughts on, you know, thinking about sort of psychological safety and pre-briefing, you know, along the sort of continuum of simulation, not just immediately before sort of a simulated event. Um, and, you know, that really sort of sparked some uh, further conversation uh, and thinking about this concept of longitudinal pre-briefing, um, you know, which sort of, uh, as Jenny mentioned, really weaves, um, you know, organizational behavior change management um, uh, into sort of the work that we do as simulationists. You know, it's interesting. I remember, Susan, our first call, you know, uh, I remember being on a bus traveling from uptown uh, in New York to downtown for a meeting and, and we chatted the whole time. And every so often when I take that route, I just, I remember our conversation. Yeah, and it was so great because this conversation that we'd had, you know, on the journal club, and it was it was kind of like this aha moment for me because it was like I thought all this work that I had to put in to try and overcome some hurdles and barriers, and and yet that feeling that yes, there's similar stories, and and so that's what really intrigued us all to kind of get together and kind of um, compare the stories and share the stories because we thought, well, if you know these people from three different programs had similar experiences, there must be something there, and let's explore that a little bit. And I remember when you all uh, talked to me about it or brought me into the conversation, you know, somebody said, or I had heard from someone else, maybe my colleague, Chris Rusin, you know, no urgency, no program. And I think part of the impetus for all of us was we had all stumbled so many times in trying to get things started. And wrongly thinking that if we had a great program, that's all we needed versus building the relationships and building the urgency <clears throat> for the program ahead of time. Um, and I think we felt like we had made every possible mistake and we'd like to help others avoid some of them. <laughs> I feel like you're totally like speaking to me because, you know, here we are sort of talking about three long sustain sustaining high impact programs. And yet those programs only occurred because, as you said, Jenny, like all of the stumble like almost failed a hundred times, right? In different practice settings, uh, you know, advising others in different places. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's nice to be able to learn both from highly successful examples and then those things that sort of didn't go so well. All right, so with that as a segue, talking about um, all these these sort of major efforts in sustained pre-briefing programs, let's start with the end. And what's the big takeaway from, from the study, from the experience, from the findings? Uh, what did we come to that really made this, makes this, this publication and sort of these programs worth examining? Well, I think, James, if I may, one of the things to me was like, after we did all of our analysis and we wrote down our stories, it was interesting to me that it's like, oh, here when we thought, we, I struggled so much and I tried to do this and I tried to do this. And when we really found out and we looked at it, it was like, oh, by the way, we used Cotter. I didn't know that I was using Cotter ahead of time. It wasn't deliberate. I had just kind of jumped through these hoops and done these things that that helped the, the program move along. And I think the aha moment for me was when we said, oh, guess what? This is something. And my gosh, wouldn't my life have been so much easier trying to implement this program if I would have known that from the beginning and able to you know, follow the steps and go along? And you know, the, the truly embarrassing thing for me is like the programs that I did 
in subsequent years that I missed a step or two that probably would have gone a lot better if I followed this uh, the, the the plot too. So I think it was um, kind of following that formal steps that we have. And um, I think one of the most beautiful things is the beautiful um, uh, graphic that Sarah Jansen designed for us because it just made it so crystal clear and it made it easy to follow. And I think that's what we really wanted to do to what Kummel spoke of earlier is like, how do we... Um, make a map for this that other people can follow and be successful with as well. Yeah. And, and you know, Susan, I, I'd love to hear from Jenny in a moment from her, you know, org behavior perspective. I think for me, right. So here's this guy, John Cotter, who studied hundreds of companies and sort of, you know, what worked about those companies when they were going through transformation um, and, and what didn't go so well. Um, and define, as you said, sort of some key steps along the way. And his seminal paper, I think, was published in like the 70s. And so I think for me, uh, it was, a, it, like you said, it was, you know, this, this beautiful moment of learning from other sort of fields um, and recognizing that, you know, uh, while things may go in fits and starts, that there often is a progression, right? Whether it's a company, whether it's an insight program as to how things sort of evolve and unfold. Yeah, and I think the big aha for me was, and the big takeaway from this paper is, we simulationists are change agents. If we don't take seriously what other people care about, what are their most significant pain points or precious goals, our programs are going to be dead in the water. So framing our Selves, not just as educationalists, but as people who have to meet others where they are and then help them achieve their goals with our program is the big mental pivot for me. I, yes. I love that, Jenny. It's like lead from where you stand, right? And so whoever's hearing this in the audience, whether you're you know, new to simulation or whether you're lead, leading large-scale simulation programs, you know, you all have, as Jenny said, like the ability to catalyze change. And we hope that you know, this paper sort of helps provide a roadmap to do that. And taking action from where you're standing actually provides such a lovely segue for the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is as I read the paper going through the methods section in particular, there's a lot of discussion around the status of the researchers as insiders within the programs that they were studying, which I think to some folks, maybe, you know, if you look back at sort of your training in like, quote unquote, formal scientific method, that's not necessarily what you think about. And yet, from these perspectives, from actually doing this work, uh, you so critically drive forward, as I said, sort of stumbling through without a path and then realizing the programs that were successful were following this path that had been laid out in organizational behavior in the 70s. Um, and then being able to look at the analysis and say like, oh, everyone who succeeded was doing these things. Um, so I'm just wondering if we could talk a little bit about that sort of insider outsider research paradigm um, and the way that other folks in the field and in general can like apply that to the potential change and transformative works that they're doing within their programs. Uh, you know, as even as a full professor, I have to say like insider research was completely new to me. Um, and so I certainly have to say that I 
feel very lucky to have learned a lot about sort of that methodology throughout this process. So I will definitely defer to the two other folks on this call who are involved in the work, who have a lot more experience with sort of this type of research methodology. So the thing that's exciting about insider-outsider research is, to me, is primarily that it legitimizes the specialized deep knowledge that people who are embedded in any work setting bring to the situation. So the big shift that this paradigm, I think, provided to the social sciences and now into um, uh, clinical and health professions education is that instead of the embedded perspective being delegitimized because you're too quote unquote biased by knowing what's going on or caring about what's going on, it uh, flips that and says, knowing what's going on and caring about what's going on gives you a special lens, almost a special microscope that lets you see how to make things happen. And the, the approach is then leavened or balanced by having outsiders also look at the conclusions that are being drawn by insiders. So when the team pulled me into this project, I was so thrilled to see that we had what I considered a natural insider-outsider research team, which is each person, Susan, Stephanie Barwick, uh, Komal Bajaj, and Sarah Janssens, had their own um, insider perspective on the programs they were leading. But because we were forcing ourselves to compare and contrast across programs as we analyzed them, they were each outsiders to each other's work. And then we had sort of a final layer of the onion in a certain sense, which was me, because I hadn't been involved in any of the programs. So I was able to look across all of them and draw some broader conclusions about what we were seeing. And so I'm excited to bring this methodology, um, which is written up in one of the SAGE methods uh, monographs, and you know there are multiple publications about it into our health professions um, education and research domain because I think we can learn so much from it. But love to hear you know, from Susan and Komal what that was like for you all. Yeah, Jenny and I agree. It was so helpful to have you as part of the team. We're just so fortunate because I really like that comparative analysis that you describe as like me being an insider to my own program and yet having you know to look at it and compare kind of my journey and the steps that I was taking with what was going on with the other programs. And so that was just so valuable. And I think it falls in nicely with that, you know, advances simulation, um, new kind of, new at the time um, modality of article about like, how do you learn from, from each other? And so I think this is so important in kind of like practice professions that we use and in especially health professions education. So it was just this marvelous opportunity to learn from and with each other really about the best practice for um, making change. Yeah, and, and I will say that, you know, for those that are listening that are sort of early on in their journey on thinking about insight to simulation or learning about insight to simulation, you know, the literature is filled with examples on how 
in-situ simulation can improve processes, can improve culture and mitigate risk. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, uh, while it's well established that in-situ simulation has value and benefit, right? It's about sort of convincing others who may not know anything about in-situ simulation that's valuable. And thus our lived experiences, our insider perspective is crucial. Not only do we sort of share graphs and look at what the data shows, but right, let's tell our stories and our vignettes, our patient stories. And I think to me, that's why I, I really sort of love this insider um, research perspective. And I'm actually actively thinking about how I can sort of apply it in other sort of uh, situations as well, because that narrative is so important. So let's talk a little bit about the processes themselves, the steps that these programs took that we now have sort of this model in the publication that programs attempting to start this journey can look at and follow um, really with a lot of those mistakes built in, which is to say like, hey, do this the first time, not the hundredth time. Um, but the big question I think is, you know, the paper is about longitudinal pre-briefing, and yet so many different efforts go into this, right? Like getting, uh, you know, people in these programs on board with what you're doing and these ideas of getting buy-in and all sorts of other things. Like to me, when I think of pre-briefing, I sort of have the script in my head, right? We sit down in the uh, simulation room or the debriefing room, and we say, "Hey, welcome. You know, this is this is where we are. Like, we're going to be here for this many hours today. Here's where the bathrooms are. Um, you know, here's the culture of psychological safety that we're trying to build. Like, it's the script from that moment to when we step into the simulations. And yet, so many more things within this article are being brought under the umbrella of this is actually all part of pre-briefing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what are all these pieces and why are they pre-briefing as opposed to some other thing? Well, James, if I if I may, you know, you touched upon some of those core elements, you know, this is how long you're going to be here, but are the chairs comfortable for you? Here's the bathrooms, right? It's this idea of sort of sense of comfort or psychological safety, right? That's really, you know, sort of what uh, pre-briefing is intended to be, right? And and when we think about launching new programs or new processes, right? It's not necessarily about, you know, if you need to empty your bladder in two hours, where do you go? But it's more so about, well, why, why are, of all the things that we could be spending our time doing, why are we doing this, right? And here as leaders, as frontline staff, um, as clinicians, at not as non-clinicians, this is our shared agreement as to what this program is or isn't, right? And so long, you know, sort of that's just one part of kind of thinking about pre this idea of pre-briefing, you know, well before a program starts, all the moves in those early days as the program is getting some mojo. And then, you know, those things, the moment, you know, sort of other priorities come up or other things happen, how do we make sure that that attention stays? And that's really that concept of longitudinal pre-briefing. I know, Susan, you, you know, you describe a situation where folks that had actually negative experiences with simulation and, and that's sort of, you know, where you were at. Uh, I, I'm wondering if you could sort of share that example a little bit. Yeah, and I think that ties into why we thought about calling it pre-briefing and as it chose to change management in the beginning, because I think um, we did, I had, you know, in, in my case, we had nurses who were 
um, kind of traumatized by past experiences with simulation. And so some of the work that I had to do was um, extending that um, safe container, if you will, um, beyond that first few minutes before, um, you know, the, the actual scenario to things that I needed to do ahead of time. So it was kind of lengthening that, right? Like in order to establish that safe um, learning environment, that psychological safety, I had to do things ahead of time to kind of like, let me introduce you to the mannequin. Let me talk about what's going to happen. Um, so it wasn't just that script that I had, you know, proximal to the event. It was something that I had to do over periods of time in order to make them feel a little bit more comfortable participating in the simulation without feeling like there was threats to them. And so I think that's kind of how I started thinking. I'm not just pre-briefing right before the event, I'm pre-briefing longer. And it's not just the participants, it's also the nursing managers on the units or other people that are involved. So it was like an extension of that pre-briefing period as you were. And James, um... The thing that I think the team of uh, Koma Bajaj, Sarah Jansen, Susan Eller, and Steph Barwick codified by comparing their programs was the work that has to be done in advance has to make others in the organization essentially want to buy in. I know that people struggle massively in simulation with getting other people to quote unquote buy in. And the shift that I think they all made was they had an idea either from their own work or from the literature about what could be important for the neonatal unit or an obstetric program. But instead of pushing and selling only, they had to reframe the situation such that other people were pulling for it. Other people wanted it. Other people saw it as something that solved a key problem for them. And so in the um, Cotter change steps that we enumerate in the article and is in one of our um, graphic uh, images in the article, we start with the idea of what is urgent for the other person and then move to how do we collaborate in creating a vision for what it would look like if that problem were solved. And it's those two moves of listening with curiosity and respect to what are the other people's problems and then tailoring the program with their inputs to a compelling story or vision of, um, you know, if we managed um, massive hemorrhage really smoothly and the massive transfusion protocol was done with, um, dare I say, grace and ease, everybody's uh, anxiety would go down. We'd feel great about how we were taking care of our mothers and babies, for example. And putting that compelling vision out there is something that I think changed the dynamic for each of these programs from push, push, push to some pull from the participants. And that feels so in line to me with what we know in theory of adult learning and adult education that adults, when they're learning new things, they have to be pulling for themselves. You can't say, this is a thing you need to know and push it onto them from the top down. It's just not how we make meaning as adults. 
And so to say like, hey, here's the things you care about. Here's the vision for the way that this could be if we can do these education efforts, if we can do these types of learning and really appealing to their sort of internal sense of this is the way I want our unit to be or our team to be or our hospital to be. That all just seems to line up so well to me. So I want to get a couple takeaways, generalizations to practice the same way we end our, our debriefings in the moment, which is to say, what are sort of the, the biggest thing, if you imagine a takeaway for someone watching this conversation, reading the article, what do you hope that they walk away with as they sort of look at their own potentially in, in situ simulation program or their own pre-briefings of their own sort of culture of building an organization doing sim? Yeah, if I, if I may, you know, I, I wanted to elaborate a little bit on that arc that Jenny sort of created for us by talking about sort of that shared sense of urgency and creating a vision. And so if you go to the article, there's a table that beautifully outlines each of those eight steps. So, you know, Jenny mentioned the establish a sense of urgency, form a guiding coalition, and create a vision. Um, and, and we provide... <clears throat> at each of those steps sort of practical examples on how we did that. And so I think for this audience sort of realizing that while we're talking about change management and theories, there are real practical moves that can help make those happen. I think the big takeaway for me there was go slow to go fast. When you think about inventing or rolling out a new simulation program. As a trained educationalist, you wanna design the education or the training. And for better or worse, instead your first few steps need to be walking the partnership pathway with those other stakeholders and finding out what they want and enrolling them by meeting their interests and their vision. And that can be a real uh, different move for many of us educationalists and feel like it's quote unquote wasting time. But I would reframe it as time well spent, slowing you down a little bit at the beginning so that you can go faster later. Uh, James, I know we're on takeaways, but you know, Jenny, you mentioned that. And I just, I remember from my own experience, right? We like had a sim scheduled for like three weeks from, from you know, and then what we realized is in, in our sort of, you know, going around and communicating with folks, empowering others to sort of act by having some low stakes scavenger hunts and things of that nature, we realized that just we needed to we needed to have a little bit more time and that humility to be like, you know what, it was scheduled for three weeks from now, but we're really going to have to do it in five weeks because that's what makes sense for this group. Right, that's what makes sense for the group. And so, you know, um, I really sort of, as you're going through the steps, you will learn more that will then help guide your further steps. Yeah, and I think if you're talking about takeaways, one of the things I will say, and hopefully it's apparent from just listening to us all, is that we talk about how we learned about doing this from our some of our successful programs. We also learned some of these things that may be not as apparent from some of the things that we did fail at some of the times. And so it's like, that's why I love when Jenny said, take this slowly, is because it's like, um, there are steps that are easier to miss or the steps that you know you don't explicitly think about. Like I thought about like, establishing shared program goals. And yet 
There were times that I didn't make sure I got everybody's goals and people had hitting goals that I wasn't aware of. And so it's like taking the time to explore some of those things um, saves you trouble um, and helps the implementation go a lot smoother. So it's like, um, it, it may not be perfect, but this is a guide to help you be successful. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, a really interesting discussion, a really interesting article that folks should uh, take a look at the links on whatever page you're, you're uh, viewing or listening to this on. It'll be available there for you to read. Um, and again, thank you so much, everyone, for, for joining us today for Center for Medical Simulation Grand Rounds. Thanks for having us, Dave.